Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. The Life and Achievements of Don Quixote de la Mancha is a Spanish epic novel by Miguel de Cervantes. Originally published in two parts, in 1605 and 1615, its full title is The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha. A founding work of Western literature, it is often labeled as the first modern novel and one of the greatest works ever written. Don Quixote is also one of the most translated books in the world. If you enjoy our program, Please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 88 of an extraordinary accident that happened to Don Quixote, which may well pass for an adventure. A clear fountain, which Don Quixote and Sancho found among some verdant trees, served to refresh them, besmeared with dust, and tired as they were after the rude encounter of the bulls. There, by the brink, leaving Rosinante and Dapple unbridled and unaltered, to their own liberty, the two forlorn adventurers sat down. The squire then went to the wallet, and having taken out of it what he used to call his stomach sauce, laid it before the night. But Don Quixote would eat nothing for pure vexation, and Sancho durst not begin for good manners, expecting that he would first shoo him the way. However, finding him so wrapped in his imaginations as to have no thoughts of lifting his hand to his mouth, the squire, without letting one word come out of his, laid aside all kind of good breeding and made a fierce attack upon the bread and cheese before him. Eat, friend Sancho, cried Don Quixote, repair the decays of nature and sustain life, which thou hast more reason to cherish than I, leave me to die, abandoned to my sorrows and the violence of my misfortunes. I was born, Sancho, to live dying and now to die eating. For my part, quoth Sancho, I am not so simple yet as to kill myself. No, I am like the cowboy that stretches his leather with his teeth. I am for lengthening my life by eating. Truly, master, there is no greater folly in the world than for a man to despair and throw the health after the hatchet. Therefore take my advice and eat as I do. And when you have done, lie down and take a nap. The fresh grass here will do as well as a feather bed. I dare say by the time you awake, you will find yourself better in body and mind. Don Quixote followed Sancho's counsel, for he was convinced the squire spoke good philosophy at that time. However, in the meanwhile, a thought coming into his mind, ah, Sancho, said he, if thou wouldst but do something that I am now going to desire thee, my cares would sit more easy on me, and my comfort would be more certain. It is only this, 
while, according to thy advice, I try to compose my thoughts with sleep, do but step aside a little, and take the reins of Rosinante's bridle, and give thyself some three or four hundred smart lashes, and part of the three thousand and on thou art to recede to disenchant Dulcinea, for, in truth, it is a shame and very great pity that poor lady should remain enchanted all this while, through thy carelessness and neglect. There is a great deal to be said as to that, quoth Sancho, but it may well keep, first let us go to sleep, and then come what will come. Let my lady Dulcinea have a little patience. There is nothing lost that comes at last, while there is life there is hope, which is as good as to say, I live with an intent to make good my promise. Don Quixote gave him thanks, ate a little, and Sancho a great deal, and then both betook themselves to their rest, leaving those constant friends and companions, Rosinante and Dapple, to their own discretion, to repose or feed at random on the pasture that abounded in that meadow. The day was now far gone, when the knight and the squire awoke. They mounted, and held on their journey, making the best of their way to an inn that seemed to be about a league distant. I call it an inn because Don Quixote himself called it so, contrary to his custom, it being a common thing with him to take inns for castles. Being got thither, they asked the innkeeper whether he had got any lodgings? Yes, answered he, and as good accommodation as you will find anywhere. They alighted, and, after Sancho had seen Rosinante and Dapple well provided for in the stable, he went away on his master, whom he found sitting on a seat made in the wall the squire blessing himself more than once that the knight had not taken the inn for a castle. Supper time approaching, Don Quixote retired to his apartment, and Sancho, staying with his host, asked him what he had to give them for supper. What you will, answered he, you may pick and choose fish or flesh, butcher's meat or poultry, wildfowl, and what not, whatever land, sea, and air afford for food, it is but ask and have, everything is to be had in this inn. There is no need of all this, quoth Sancho, a couple of roasted chickens will do our business, for my master has a nice stomach, and eats but little, and, as for me, I am none of your unreasonable trenchermen. As for chickens, replied the innkeeper, truly we have none, for the kites have devoured them. Why, then, quoth Sancho, roast us a good handsome pullet, with eggs, so it be young and tender. A pullet, master, answered the host, I sent above fifty yesterday to the city to sell, but, setting aside pullets, you may have anything else. Why, then, quoth Sancho, even give us a good joint of veal or kid. Cry you mercy, replied the innkeeper, now I remember me, we have none left in the house, the last company that went cleared me quite, but by next week we shall have enough and to spare. We are in a fine case, indeed, quoth Sancho, now will I hold a good wager that all these defects must be made up with a dish of eggs and bacon. Hey day, cried the host, my guest has a rare knack at guessing, I told him I had no hens nor pullets in the house, and yet he would have me to have eggs. 
Think on something else, I beseech you, and let us talk no more of that. Come, come, cried Sancho, let us have something, tell me what thou hast, Mr. Landlord, and do not put me to trouble my brains any longer. Why, then, do you see, quoth the host, to deal plainly with you, I have a delicate pair of cow heels that look like calf's feet, or a pair of calf's feet that look like cow heels, dressed with onions, peas, and bacon a dish for a prince, they are just ready to be taken off, and by this time they cry, come eat me, come eat me. Cow heels, cried Sancho, I set my mark on them, let nobody touch them, I will give more for them than any other shall. There is nothing I love better. Nobody else shall have them, answered the host, you need not fear, for all the guests I have in the house, besides yourselves, are persons of quality that carry their steward, their cook, and their provisions along with them. As for quality, quoth Sancho, my master is a person of as good quality as the proudest of them all, if you go to that, but his profession allows of no larders nor butteries. This was the discourse that passed betwixt Sancho and the innkeeper, for, as to the host's interrogatories concerning his master's profession, Sancho was not then at leisure to make him any answer. In short, supper time came, Don Quixote went to his room, the host brought the dish of cow heels, such as it was, and set him down fairly to supper. But at the same time, in the next room, which was divided from that where they were by a slender partition, the knight overheard somebody talking. Dear Don Geronimo, said the unseen person, I beseech you, till supper is brought in, let us read another chapter of the second part of Don Quixote. The champion no sooner heard himself named than up he started and listened with attentive ears to what was said of him, and then he heard that Don Geronimo answer, why would you have us read nonsense, Senior Don John? Methinks anyone that has read the first part of Don Quixote should take but little delight in reading the second. That may be, replied Don John, however, it may not be amiss to read it, for there is no book so bad as not to have something that is good in it. What displeases me most in this part is, that it represents Don Quixote as no longer in love with Dulcinea del Toboso. Upon these words, Don Quixote, burning with anger and indignation, cried out, whoever says that Don Quixote de la Mancha has forgotten, or can forget, Dulcinea del Toboso, I will make him know, with equal arms, that he departs wholly from the truth, for the peerless Dulcinea del Toboso cannot be forgotten, nor can Don Quixote be guilty of forgetfulness. Constancy is his motto, and to preserve his fidelity voluntarily and without the least restraint is his profession. Who is he that answers us? cries one of those in the next room. Who should it be? quoth Sancho, but Don Quixote de la Mancha his own self, the same that will make good all he has said, and all he has to say, take my word for it, for a good paymaster never grudges to give security. Sancho had no sooner made that answer than in came the two gentlemen, for they appeared to be no less, and one of them, 
throwing his arms about Don Quixote's neck. Your presence, Sir Knight, said he, does not belie your reputation, nor can your reputation fail to raise a respect for your presence. You are certainly the true Don Quixote de la Mancha, the polar star and luminary of chivalry errant, in despite of him that has attempted to usurp your name as the author of this book, which I here deliver into your hands, has presumed to do. With that he took the book from his friend and gave it to Don Quixote. The knight took it and, without saying a word, began to turn over the leaves, then, returning it a while after, in the little I have seen, said he, I have found three things in this author deserving reprehension. First, I find fault with some words in his preface. In the second place, his language is Aragonian, for sometimes he writes without articles. And the third thing I have observed, which betrays most his ignorance, is he is out of the way in one of the principal parts of the history, for there he says that the wife of my squire, Sancho Panza, is called Mary Gutierrez, which is not true, for her name is Teresa Panza, and he that errs in so considerable a passage may well be suspected to have committed many gross errors through the whole history. A pretty impudent fellow is this same history writer, cried Sancho, sure he knows much what belongs to our concerns, to call my wife Teresa Panza, Mary Gutierrez. Pray take the book again, if it like your worship, and see whether he says anything of me, and whether he has not changed my name too. Sure, by what you have said, honest man, said Don Geronimo, you should be Sancho Panza, squire to Senior Don Quixote. So I am, quoth Sancho, and I am proud of the office. Well, said the gentleman, to tell you the truth, the last author does not treat you so civilly as you seem to deserve. He represents you as a glutton and a fool, without the least grain of wit or humor, and very different from the Sancho we have in the first part of your master's history. Heaven forgive him, quoth Sancho, he might have left me where I was, without offering to meddle with me. Every man's nose will not make a shoeing horn. Let us leave the world as it is. St. Peter is very well at Rome. Presently the two gentlemen invited Don Quixote to sup with them in their chamber, for they knew there was nothing to be got in the unfit for his entertainment. Don Quixote, who was always very complacent, could not deny their request and went with them. Sancho stayed behind with the flesh pot. He placed himself at the upper end of the table with the innkeeper for his messmate, for he was no less a lover of cow heels than the squire. Someone had published a book which he called the second part of Don Quixote before our author had printed this. While Don Quixote was at supper with the gentleman, Don John asked him when he heard of the lady Dulcinea del Toboso and whether she still retained a grateful sense of the love and constancy of Senior Don Quixote. She does, answered Don Quixote, and my thoughts are more fixed upon her than ever. Our correspondence is after the old fashion, not frequent, and, alas, her beauty is transformed into the homely appearance of a female rustic. And with that he repeated the story of her enchantment, 
with what had befallen him in the cavern of Montesinos and the means that the sage Merlin had prescribed to free her from enchantment. The gentlemen were extremely pleased to hear from Don Quixote's own mouth the strange passages of his history, equally wondering at the nature of his extravagances and his elegant manner of relating them. One minute they looked upon him to be in his senses, and the next they thought he had lost them all, so that they could not resolve what degree to assign him between madness and sound judgment. They then asked him which way he was traveling. He told them he was for Saragossa, to make one of the tournaments held in that city once a year for the prize of armor. Don John acquainted him that the pretended second part of his history gave an account how Don Quixote, whoever he was, had been at Saragossa, at a public running at the ring, the description of which was wretched and defective in the contrivance, mean and low in the style and expression, and miserably poor in devices, all made up of foolish idle stuff. For that reason, said Don Quixote, I will not set a foot in Saragossa, and so the world shall see what a notorious lie this new historian is guilty of, and all mankind shall perceive I am not the Don Quixote he speaks of. You do very well, said Don Geronimo. Besides, there is another tournament at Barcelona, where you may signalize your valor. I designed to do so, replied Don Quixote, and so, gentlemen, give me leave to bid you good night, and permit me to go to bed, for it is time, and pray place me in the number of your best friends and most faithful servants. Having taken leave of one another, Don Quixote and Sancho retired to their chamber, leading the two strangers in admiration to think what a medley the knight had made of good sense and extravagance, but fully satisfied, however, that these two persons were the true Don Quixote and Sancho, and not those obtruded upon the public by the Aragonian author. Early in the morning Don Quixote got up, and knocking at a thin wall that parted his chamber from that of the gentleman, he took his leave of them. Sancho paid the host nobly, but advised him either to keep better provisions in his inn, or to commit it less. Chapter 89 What happened to Don Quixote going to Barcelona? The morning was cool and seemed to promise a temperate day when Don Quixote left the inn, having first informed himself which was the readiest way to Barcelona, for he was resolved he would not so much as see Saragossa that he might prove the new author a liar who, as he was told, had so much misrepresented him in the pretended second part of his history. For the space of six days they traveled without meeting any adventure worthy of memory, but the seventh, having lost their way, and being overtaken by the night, they were obliged to stop in a thicket of oaks or cork trees. They're both dismounted, and laying themselves down at the foot of the trees, Sancho, who had eaten heartily that day, easily resigned himself into the arms of sleep. But Don Quixote, whom his chimeras kept awake much more than hunger, could not so much as close his eyes, his working thoughts being hurried to a thousand several places. This time he fancied himself in Montesinos' cave, fancied he saw his Dulcinea, perverted as she was into a country hoin, jump at a single leap upon her ass colt. 
The next moment he thought he heard the sage Merlin's voice and awful words relate the means required to effect her disenchantment. Presently a fit of despair seized him. He was enraged to think of Sancho's remissness and want of charity, the squire having not given himself above five lashes, a small and inconsiderable number in proportion to the number still behind. This reflection so aggravated his vexation that he could not forbear thinking on some extraordinary methods. If Alexander the Great thought he, when he could not untie the Gordian knot, said, it is the same thing to cut or to undo, and so slashed it asunder, and yet became the sovereign of the world, why may not I free Dulcinea from enchantment by lashing Sancho myself, whether he will or no? For, if the condition of this remedy consists in Sancho's receiving three thousand and odd lashes, what does it signify to me whether he gives himself those blows, or another gives them him, since the stress lies upon his receiving them, by what means soever they are given. Full of that conceit, he came up to Sancho, having first taken the reins of Rosinante's bridle, and fitted them to his purpose of lashing him with them. Sancho, however, soon started out of his sleep, and was thoroughly awake in an instant. What is here? cried he. It is I answered Don Quixote, I am come to repair thy negligence and to seek the remedy of my torments. I am come to whip thee, Sancho, and to discharge, in part at least, that debt for which thou standest engaged. Dulcinea perishes while thou livest careless of her fate, and therefore I am resolved, while we are here alone in this recess, to give thee at least two thousand stripes. Hold you there, quoth Sancho, pray be quiet, will you let me alone, or I protest deaf men shall hear us. The strokes I am to give myself are to be voluntary, not forced, and at this time I have no mind to be whipped at all, let it suffice that I promise you to do so when the humor takes me. No, Sancho, said Don Quixote, there is no trusting to thy courtesy, for thou art hard-hearted and, though a peasant, a very tender flesh. He then struggled with Sancho, upon which he jumped up, threw his arms about the dawn, tripped up his heels, and laid him flat on his back, whereupon he held his hands down so fast that he could not stir and scarcely could breathe. How, traitor, exclaimed the knight, dost thou rebel against thy natural lord? Dost thou raise thy hand against him who feeds thee? I neither raise up nor pull down, answered Sancho, I only defend myself, who am my own lord. If your worship will promise me to let me alone, and not talk about whipping at present, I will set you at liberty, if not, here thou deest, traitor, enemy to Donna Sancho. Don Quixote gave him the promise he desired, and swore by the life of his best thoughts he would not touch a hair of his garment but leave the whipping entirely to his own discretion. Sancho now removed to another place, and, as he was going to lay himself under another tree, he thought something touched his head, and, reaching up his hands, he felt a couple of dangling feet with hose and shoes. Trembling with fear, he moved on a little further, but was incommoded by other legs, 
upon which he called to his master for help. Don Quixote went up to him and asked him what was the matter when Sancho told him that all the trees were full of men's feet and legs. Don Quixote felt them and immediately guessed the cause. He said, be not afraid, Sancho, doubtless these are the legs of robbers and banditti who have been punished for their crimes, for here the officers of justice hang them by scores at a time when they can lay hold of them, and from this circumstance, I conclude we are not far from Barcelona. In truth, Don Quixote was right in his conjecture, for when day began to dawn, they plainly saw that the legs they had felt in the dark belonged to the bodies of thieves. But if they were alarmed at these dead banditti, how much more were they disturbed at being suddenly surrounded by more than forty of their living comrades who commanded them to stand and not to move till their captain came up. Don Quixote was on foot, his horse unbridled, his lance leaning against a tree at some distance, in short, being defenseless, he thought it best to cross his hands, hang down his head, and reserve himself for better occasions. The robbers, however, were not idle, but immediately fell to work upon Dapple, and, in a trice, emptied both wallet and cloak bag. Fortunately for Sancho, he had secured the crowns given him by the duke, with his other money in a belt which he wore about his waist, nevertheless they would not have escaped the searching eyes of these good people who spare not even what is hid between the flesh and the skin had they not been checked by the arrival of their captain. His age seemed to be about four and thirty, his body was robust, his stature tall, his visage austere, and his complexion swarthy, he was mounted upon a powerful steed clad in a coat of steel, and his belt was stuck round with pistols. Observing that his squires, for so they call men of their vocation, were about to rifle Sancho, he commanded them to forbear, and was instantly obeyed, and thus the girdle escaped. He wondered to see a lance standing against a tree, a target on the ground, and Don Quixote in armor and pensive, with the most sad and melancholy countenance that sadness itself could frame. Going up to the knight, he said, Be not so dejected, good sir, for you are not fallen into the hands of a cruel Osiris, but into those of Roque Ginnard, who has more of compassion in his nature than cruelty. My dejection, answered Don Quixote, is not on account of having fallen into your hands, O valorous Roque, whose fame extends over the whole earth, but for my negligence in having suffered myself to be surprised by your soldiers, contrary to the bounden duty of a knight errant, which requires that I should be continually on the alert, and, at all hours, my own sentinel, for, let me tell you, illustrious Roque, had they met me on horseback, with my lance and my target, they would have found it. No very easy task to make me yield. No, sir, I am Don Quixote de la Mancha, he with whose exploits the whole globe resounds. Roque Guinart presently perceived Don Quixote's infirmity and that it had in it more of madness than valor, and, though he had sometimes heard his name mentioned, he always thought that what had been said of him was a fiction, conceiving that such a character could not exist, he was therefore delighted with this meaning, as he might now know, 
from his observation what degree of credit was really due to the reports in circulation. Be not concerned, said Roquet, addressing himself to Don Quixote, nor tax fortune with unkindness. By thus stumbling, you may chance to stand more firmly than ever, for heaven, by strange and circuitous ways, incomprehensible to men, is wont to raise the fallen and enrich the needy. Don Quixote was about to return his thanks for this courteous reception, when suddenly a noise was heard near them, like the trampling of many horses, but it was caused by one only, upon which came, at full speed, a youth, seemingly about twenty years of age, clad in green damask edged with gold lace, trousers, and a loose coat, his hat cocked in the Walloon fashion, with boots, spurs, dagger, and gold-hilted sword, a small carabin in his hand, and a brace of pistols by his side. Roquet, hearing the noise of a horse, turned his head and observed this handsome youth advancing towards him. Valiant Roquet, said the cavalier, you are the person I have been seeking, for with you I hope to find some comfort, though not a remedy, in my afflictions. Not to keep you in suspense, because I perceive that you do not know me, I will tell you who I am. I am Claudia Geronima, daughter of Simon Forte, your intimate friend, and the particular enemy of Clocalterellus, who is also yours, being of the faction which is adverse to you. You know, too, that Torellus has a son, called Don Vincente de Torellus, at least so he was called not two hours ago. That son of his to shorten the story of my misfortune, ah, what sorrow he has brought upon me. That son, I say, saw me, and courted me, I listened to him, and loved him, unknown to my father. In short, he promised to be my spouse, and I pledged myself to become his, without proceeding any farther. Yesterday I was informed that, forgetting his engagement to me, he was going to be married to another, and that this morning the ceremony was to be performed. The news confounded me, and I lost all patience. My father being out of town, I took the opportunity of equipping myself as you now see me, and by the speed of this horse, I overtook Don Vincente about a league hence, and, without stopping to reproach him, or hear his excuses, I fired at him not only with this piece, but with both my pistols, and lodged, I believe, not a few balls in his body, thus washing away with blood the stains of my honor. I left him to his servants, who either dared not, or could not prevent the execution of my purpose, and am come to seek your assistance to get to France, where I have relations, with whom I may live, and to entreat you likewise to protect my father from any cruel revenge on the part of Don Vincente's numerous kindred. Roque was struck with the gallantry, bravery, figure, and also the adventure of the beautiful Claudia, and said to her, Come, madam, and let us first be assured of your enemy's death, and then we will consider what is proper to be done for you. So, after commanding his squires to restore to Sancho all they had taken from Dapple, and likewise to retire to the place where they had lodged the night before, he went off immediately with Claudia at full speed in quest of the wounded or dead Don Vincente. 
They presently arrived at the place where Claudia had overtaken him and found nothing there except the blood which had been newly spilt. But, looking round, at a considerable distance they saw some persons ascending a hill and concluded, as indeed it proved, that it was Don Vincente being conveyed by his servants either to a doctor or his grave. They instantly pushed forward to overtake them, which they soon effected, and found Don Vincente in the arms of his servants, entreating them in a low and feeble voice to let him die in that place, for he could no longer endure the pain of his wounds. Claudia and Roque, throwing themselves from their horses, drew near. The servants were startled at the appearance of Roque, and Claudia was troubled at the sight of Don Vincente, when, divided between tenderness and resentment, she approached him, and, taking hold of his hand, said, Had you but given me this hand, according to our contract, you would not have been reduced to this extremity. The wounded cavalier opened his almost closed eyes, and, recognizing Claudia, he said, I perceive, fair and mistaken lady, that it is to your hand I owe my death, a punishment unmerited by me, for neither in thought nor deed could I offend you. Is it not true, then, said Claudia, that, this very morning, you were going to be married to Leonora, daughter of the rich Belvastro? No, certainly, answered Don Vincente, my evil fortune must have borne you that news to excite your jealousy to bereave me of life, but since I leave it in your arms, I esteem myself happy, and, to assure you of this truth, take my hand, and, if you are willing, receive me for your husband, for I can now give you no other satisfaction for the injury which you imagine you have received. Claudia pressed his hand, and such was the anguish of her heart that she swooned away upon the bloody bosom of Don Vincente, and at the same moment he was seized with a mortal paroxysm. Roque was confounded, and knew not what to do, the servants ran for water, with which they sprinkled their faces, Claudia recovered, but Don Vincente was left in the sleep of death. When Claudia was convinced that her beloved husband no longer breathed, she rent the air with her groans and pierced the skies with her lamentations. She tore her hair, scattered it in the wind, and, with her own merciless hands, wounded and disfigured her face with every other demonstration of grief, distraction, and despair. O oh, rash and cruel woman, she exclaimed, with what facility wert thou moved to this evil deed? O oh, maddening sting of jealousy, how deadly thy effects! O oh, my dear husband, whose love for me hath given thee a cold grave! So piteous, indeed, were the lamentations of Claudia, that they forced tears even from the eyes of Roque, where they were seldom or never seen before. The servants wept and lamented, Claudia was recovered from one fainting fit, only to fall into another, and all around was a scene of sorrow. At length Roque Guinard ordered the attendants to take up the body of Don Vincente and convey it to the town where his father dwelt, which was not far distant, that it might be there interred. Claudia told Roque that it was her determination to retire to a nunnery, of which her aunt was abbess, there to spend what remained of her wretched life, 
looking to heavenly nuptials and an eternal spouse. Roque applauded her good design, offering to conduct her wherever it was her desire to go and to defend her father against the relatives of Don Vincente or anyone who should offer violence to him. Claudia expressed her thanks in the best manner she could, but declined his company and, overwhelmed with affliction, took her leave of him. At the same time, Don Vincente's servants carried off his dead body and Roque returned to his companions. Thus ended the amour of Claudia Geronima and no wonder that it was so calamitous since it was brought about by the cruel and irresistible power of jealousy. Roque Guinart found his band of desperados in the place he had appointed to meet them and Don Quixote in the midst of them endeavoring in a formal speech to persuade them to quit that kind of life so prejudicial both to soul and body. But his auditors were chiefly Gascons, a wild and ungovernable race, and therefore his harangue made but little impression upon them. Roque having asked Sancho Panza whether they have restored to him all the property which had been taken from Dapple, he said they have returned all but three nightcaps, which were worth three cities. What does the fellow say? Quoth one of the party, I have got them, and they are not worth three reals. That is true, quoth Don Quixote, but my squire justly values the gift for the sake of the giver. Roque Guinart insisted upon their being immediately restored, then, after commanding his men to draw up in a line before him, he caused all the clothes, jewels, and money, and, in short, all they had plundered since the last division to be brought out and spread before them, which being done, he made a short appraisement, reducing what could not be divided into money, and shared the whole among his company with the utmost exactness and impartiality. After sharing the booty in this manner, by which all were satisfied, Roque said to Don Quixote, if I were not thus exact in dealing with these fellows, there would be no living with them. Well, quoth Sancho, justice must needs be a good thing, for it is necessary, I see, even among thieves. On hearing this, one of the squires raised the button of his piece and would surely have split poor Sancho's head if Roque had not called out to him to forbear. Terrified at his narrow escape, Sancho resolved to seal up his lips while he remained in such company. Just at this time, intelligence was brought by the scouts that, not far distant, on the Barcelona road, a large body of people were seen coming that way. Can you discover, said Roque, whether they are such as we look for, or such as look for us? Such as we look for, sir. Away then, said Roque, and bring them hither straight, and see that none escape. The command was instantly obeyed, the band sallied forth, while Don Quixote and Sancho remained with the chief, anxious to see what would follow. In the meantime, Roque conversed with the knight on his own way of living. This life of ours must appear strange to you, Senor Don Quixote, new accidents, new adventures, in constant succession, and all full of danger and disquiet. It is a state, I confess, in which there is no repose either for body or mind. Injuries which I could not brook, 
and a thirst of revenge first led me into it, contrary to my nature, for the savage asperity of my present behavior is a disguise to my heart, which is gentle and humane. Yet, unnatural as it is, having plunged into it, I persevere, and, as one sin is followed by another, and mischief is added to mischief, my own resentments are now so linked with those of others, and I am so involved in wrongs, and factions, and engagements, that nothing but the hand of providence can snatch me out of this entangled maze. Nevertheless, I despair not coming, at last, into a safe and quiet harbor. Don Quixote was surprised at these sober reflections, so different from what he should have expected from a banditti chief whose occupation was robbery and murder. Senor Roque, said he, the beginning of a cure consists in the knowledge of the distemper and in the patient's willingness to take the medicines prescribed to him by his physician. You are sick, you know your malady, and God, our physician, is ready with medicines that, in time, will certainly effect a cure. Besides, sinners of good understanding are nearer to amendment than those who are devoid of it, and as your superior sense is manifest, be of good cheer and hope for your entire recovery. If, in this desirable work, you would take the shortest way and at once enter that of your salvation, come with me and I will teach you to be nigh a profession, it is true, full of labors and disasters, but which, being placed to the account of penance, will not fail to lead you to honor and felicity. Roque smiled at Don Quixote's counsel, but, changing the discourse, he related to him the tragical adventure of Claudia Geronima, which grieved Sancho to the heart, for he had been much captivated by the beauty, grace, and sprightliness of the young lady. The party which had been dispatched by Roque now returned with their captives, who consisted of two gentlemen on horseback, two pilgrims on foot, and a coach full of women, attended by six servants, some on foot, and some on horseback, and also two muleteers belonging to the gentlemen. They were surrounded by the victors, who, as well as the vanquished, waited in profound silence till the great Roque should declare his will. He first asked the gentlemen who they were, whither they were going, and what money they had. We are captains of infantry, sir, said one of them, and are going to join our companies, which are at Naples, and, for that purpose, intend to embark at Barcelona, where, it is said, for galleys are about to sail for Sicily. Two or three hundred crowns is somewhere about the amount of our cash, and with that sum we accounted ourselves rich, considering that we are soldiers whose purses are seldom overladen. The pilgrims, being questioned in the same manner, said their intention was to embark for Rome and that they had about them some threescore reals. The coach now came under examination, and Roque was informed by one of the attendants that the persons within were the Lady Donna Guillomar de Quiñones, wife of the regent of the vicarship of Naples, her young daughter, a waiting maid, and a duenna, that six servants accompanied them, and their money amounted to six hundred crowns. It appears, then, said Roque Guinard, that we have here nine hundred crowns and sixty reals, 
My soldiers are sixty in number, see how much falls to the share of each, for I am myself but an indifferent accountant. His armed ruffians, on hearing this, cried out, Long live Roque Ginnart, in spite of the dogs that seek his ruin. But the officers looked chop-fallen, the Lady Regent much dejected, and the pilgrims nothing pleased at witnessing this confiscation of their effects. Roque held them a while in suspense, and, turning to the captains, he said, Pray, gentlemen, do me the favor to lend me sixty crowns, and you, Lady Regent, fourscore, as a slight perquisite which these honest gentlemen of mine expect, for the abbot must eat that sings for his meat, and you may then depart and prosecute your journey without molestation, being secured by a pass which I will give you, in case of your meeting with any other of my people who are dispersed about this part of the country, for it is not practice with me to molest soldiers, and I should be loath, madam, to be found wanting in respect to the fair sex, especially to ladies of your quality. The captains were liberal in their acknowledgments to Roque for his courtesy and moderation in having generously left them a part of their money, and Donna Guillomar de Quinones would have thrown herself out of the coach to kiss the feet and hands of the great Roque, but he would not suffer it, and entreated her pardon for the injury he was forced to do them, in compliance with the duties of an office which his evil fortune had imposed on him. The lady then ordered the fourscore crowns to be immediately paid to him as her share of the assessment. The captains had already disbursed their quota, and the pilgrims were proceeding to offer their little all when Roque told them to wait. Then, turning to his men, he said, Of these crowns two fall to each man's share, and twenty remain. Let ten be given to these pilgrims, and the other ten to this honest squire, that, in relating his travels, he may have cause to speak well of us. Then, producing his writing implements, with which he was always provided, he gave them a pass, directed to the chiefs of his several parties, and, taking his leave, he dismissed them, all admiring his generosity, his gallantry, and extraordinary conduct, and looking upon him rather as an Alexander the Great than a notorious robber. On the departure of the travelers, one of Roque's men seemed disposed to murmur, saying, in his Catalonian dialect, this captain of ours is wondrous charitable and would do better among friars than with those of our trade, but if he must be giving, let it be with his own. The wretch spoke not so low, but that Roque overheard him, and drawing his sword, he almost cleft his head in two, saying, thus I chastise the mutinous. The rest were silent and overawed, such was their obedience to his authority. Roque then withdrew a little and wrote a letter to a friend at Barcelona to inform him that he had with him the famous Don Quixote de la Mancha, of whom so much had been reported, and that, being on his way to Barcelona, he might be sure to see him there on the approaching festival of St. John the Baptist, parading the strand, armed at all points, mounted on his steed Rosinante, and attended by his squire Sancho Panza, upon an ass, adding that he had found him wonderfully sagacious and entertaining. He also desired him to give notice of this to his friends the Niera, that they might be diverted with the night, 
and enjoy a pleasure which he thought too good for his enemies the Cadales, though he feared it was impossible to prevent their coming in for a share of what all the world must know and be delighted with. He dispatched this epistle by one of his troop, who, changing the habit of his vocation for that of a peasant, entered the city and delivered it as directed. 